title of my message is called Brainwashing. Brainwashing. And I'm not trying to brainwash you this morning in the sense that you understand what brainwashing is. <laughs> okay. Um, but we're kind of still in the middle of our Armor of God series. We're kind of coming to, to a close, not this Sunday, but I believe next Sunday. And, and we're looking at all the Armor of God, and we looked at all of these things found in the Bible. But before we kind of get and, and go back to Ephesians chapter 6 to remind ourselves what the Scripture has to say, I want to share with you some interesting facts about the brain. Some interesting facts about your brain. All right? Uh, you might find them interesting. I kind of did. And, you know, whatever. Okay. Um, did you know that you cannot tickle yourself? Yeah, it's just, uh, you cannot tickle yourself because your brain distinguishes the difference between unexpected external touch and your own touch. That's the reason why you cannot tickle yourself. Uh, it doesn't work. And I'm ticklish too. See, it just doesn't work. I actually, when I read that, I tried to tickle myself. And I, maybe I shouldn't have shared that. But uh, <clears throat> all right, w- without any words, you may be able to determine if somebody is in a good mood, is feeling sad, or is angry just by reading the face. Because there is a small area in the brain called the amygdala. Is that right? Amygdala. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. Amygdala. Uh, And it is responsible for your ability to read somebody else's face for clues on how they're feeling. (laughs) You have a small portion of your brain that is exclusively responsible for reading people's faces. I'm reading your face. And you're looking at me like I'm crazy. All right. You know the connection between body and mind is a strong one. One estimates, uh, one estimate is that between fifty to seventy percent, seventy percent of the visits to the doctor for physical ailments are attributed to psychological factors. The connection between the body and the brain. You know, there's a world champion memorizer. A world champion memorizer. No, it's not me. <laughs> Trust me, it's not me. All right. His name is Ben Pridmore, and he memorized 96 historical events in just five mem- uh, minutes of memorizing. In, all right, in just five minutes, he memorized 96 historical events. He took a shuffled deck of cards and memorized a a shuffled deck of cards in 26.28 seconds. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's not happening. Sorry. All right. Most people, about dreams, most people dream about one to two hours a night and have an average of four to seven dreams each night. Did you know that? Four to seven dreams. This is all happening in the mind while you're asleep. Five minutes after a dream, half of the dream that you just had is forgotten. Ten minutes after a dream, and over 90% is forgotten. This is why you write down your dreams immediately if you want to remember them. And also, did you know this? If you are snoring, 
you're not dreaming. Apparently, I don't dream as much as this thing says I dream. <laughs> yes, all right. Um, Japanese researchers have successfully developed a technolo- uh, technology that can put thoughts on a screen and may soon be able to screen people's dreams. That's, that, I don't know if I want to see people's thoughts or dreams. All right. Uh, did you know that laughing at a joke is no simple task? As it requires activity in five different areas of the brain just to laugh. Five different areas of the brain just to laugh. My brain is active. Some of you, not so active. I crack jokes and you just look at me. It's, you're missing that, that, that fifth one. Just It's firing, but it's just not going. You know what I'm saying? It's just something's missing there. All right. Um, the average number of thoughts that a human, that humans are believed to experience each day is 70,000 thoughts. You will have 70,000 thoughts on average every day. That is why we have problems <laughs> right there. Okay. 70,000 thoughts in an average day. All right. So as we're talking about the brain, let's look real quick uh, in Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 10. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against powers and against world forces of this darkness. And against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore... Take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand uh, and resist the, uh, in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded yourself with the loins of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of gospel of peace. In addition to all, take up the shield of faith, which is able to uh, extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take up the helmet of salvation, the helmet of salvation. So we've covered all of these things, the, the girdle of truth. We've talked about the shoes of, of peace, the breastplate of righteousness. We've talked about the shield of faith and all of these things and how they are components in the arm of God that we are in a high stakes spiritual war, that there is an enemy who has joined together to ruin your life, to to, to make your life miserable. He is responsible for the darkest and the, and the most difficult moments of your life. He is he's the one responsible. And he's trying to ruin your health. He's trying to ru- ruin your relationships. He's trying to ruin uh, God's influence and God's word in your life. He's trying to sabotage your ability to grow and know God in the way that God wants you to know him. And we are in a high-stakes spiritual war, and we have to be ready for this. And so this last one, not last one, but the one that we're looking at today, here's the helmet of salvation. The helmet was a highly decorated piece of armor. They would have etchings and, and engravings all over them. And uh, like they would have a uh, landscape and stuff like that that was engraved in their helmet. And the reason why this stuff was engraved inside of their helmet is because it was there to remind the soldiers what they were fighting for. 
It was there to remind them of this land that they, that they lived in, this land that, that their, their family lived in, that their, their loved ones you know, lived in, that reminded them of what it is that they were fighting for. It actually was something that brought back to memory. You know, they didn't have iPhones and, and Samsung and all of these things that they could kind of pull out and look at. And so it's just all. And so these engravings that they had were there for reminders. It was to remind them of what it is that they were doing and why they were doing what they were doing. The helmet could be fashioned after a horse, uh, that it would look like a horse. And again, this is a part of the reminder process of, of their home. It was made of bronze, but it was so heavy that it would be lined on the inside with sponge. They would make these things with you know, with, with bronze and, and, and these things were so thick and so heavy, they would take the sponge and they would line the sponge on the inside of the helmet so that when they put it on, it wasn't just like putting, you know, metal or bronze on top of the head, but it was, it would be cushioning. And these guys had to wear these things on top of their head to protect them. And it actually made their necks very strong. You know, they had these, I'm sure, bulging necks, neck muscles as they had to kind of keep this thing fixed on top of their head. It was so strong that it could withstand anything that was thrown at it. As a matter of fact, the Romans did a lot of battle uh, with tribes that lived in the north of them. And these particular people, and, and, you know, because of you know, the lack of technology and stuff like that, when they would go to war, these people, a lot of times these, from a historical standpoint, you, you study some of these tribes and these nations that lived to the north of the Romans, these people would use in battle. They would use like um, they would use clubs and battle axes and stuff like this. And so this helmet was made so strong that it was able to withstand a battle axe to the head. It was able to withstand somebody trying to swing a club and whack them. It was able to to, to keep them you know, from, you know, being damaged in their head by these northern tribes that they would face that would come in and try to, to hurt them. It was able to withstand all those weapons. It was even able to withstand the arrows that could be shot at them and shot at their heads. Now, the Bible says that we are to have a no-so salvation. We're to have a no-so salvation. And there's a lot of people in church that just don't know. And there's a lot of people in church that even would try to tell you that may, you may not even ever really be able to know that you are saved. And there are people that come to church. There are people that love God. And, you know, and I, I've talked to them before in the streets. And we would, we would say, you know, questions like this. Say, hey, if you were to die tonight in your sleep, tonight you go home and you were to fall asleep and, and you were to die in the middle of sleep, do you know with absolute certainty, are you 100% sure that you would go to heaven? Well, that question right there makes all the difference in the world. Do I know for sure? Do I have a no-so salvation? Or am I uncertain about my salvation? Am I uncertain about where I'm going to spend in eternity and, and, and what's going to happen to me? In 1 John chapter 5, verse 12, it says, He who has the Son has the life. And he who does not have the son does not have the life. 
And these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son so that you may know that you have eternal life. The Bible here says very specifically that it is possible for us to know with absolute certainty that we have eternal life. That we don't have to be guessing. We don't have to be trying to figure it out. We don't have to be wondering whether or not we have eternal life, whether or not we're saved. The Bible says that Paul says, I write these things to you so that you can know that you have eternal life. Where do we get this knowledge from? Some people feel like it comes from the feelings that we have. Um, And those things are good, but you can't really relate your salvation in that particular way. You cannot really relate your salvation to a feeling. And the reason why this is, is because when you relate your salvation to a feeling, okay, then what you do as you communicate your salvation experience to other people, then what happens is, is other people don't feel the things that you feel when you got saved, and then they begin to wonder, well, I didn't feel that. Maybe I wonder if I've even saved, or I'm even saved or not. You'll have people that will, you, you, you know, they'll come down to an altar, And this person over here is just bawling and crying their eyes out and saying, God, forgive me. And then you have a person over here who's virtually unmoved emotionally, but they're saying, God, forgive me. And sometimes this person who's standing here will look and say, well, I wonder if I'm even saved. I don't, I mean, I'm not crying like this guy over here and people around him may look and say, I don't even know if God's doing anything in this person's life because they're not, they're not even emotionally invested in what's going on. And you can't really tie salvation to a feeling. Everyone is wired differently than another and how one experiences salvation may not be the way another experiences it. When you got saved, you may have gotten all emotional and cried out before the Lord and someone else may have not felt or experienced a thing. I know like for myself, I remember the day that I got saved. When I was, uh, had to have been before I was in the 10th grade. So um, if I had to guess, I was in, middle school at some point. I don't even remember how old I was, but I remember what happened. I remember feeling I, I was at my house, at, not my house. It was my parents' house, but I was, I was there. And I remember one evening having this deep sense of conviction that came over me inside of me that I, I, I knew at that moment that something was wrong. And if I was to die, I felt like that I was, I would go to hell. That's what, how I felt. It was this, this, conviction, this wave of conviction that came over me. And right there in my room, in my bed, I, I, you know, I've been in church, so I knew how to pray. And at that moment I prayed, I said, God, forgive me. You know, I want you to be Lord. I, I don't want to live in rebellion. I prayed in that moment. I mean, I cried. I, I don't even remember. But here's what I can't do. What I can't do is I can't take my personal salvation experience and create doctrine by it. If you didn't get saved in your bedroom with deep conviction that you were going to go to hell, then I wonder if you really got saved or not. 
I can't use my personal experience in salvation and somehow bring into question your personal experience of salvation because everybody's experience of salvation is different. And if you start comparing yourself to other people and your experiences versus other people's experiences, then what it does is it begins to creep in and, and, and create doubt. When God says that it is possible for us to know that we have eternal life. You see, when our feelings don't match our expectations, it can create confusion in us. When our feelings, when your feelings don't match your expectations, it can create confusion. When you pray and you don't feel a way that you think you should feel, it can create confusion. When you come to an altar and somebody lays hands on you to pray for you to be anointed or to, or to be free from something and you don't feel what you think you should be feeling, it can create confusion in you. Because oftentimes what we do is we relate our experiences with God at an emotional level. And then we think that every experience we have with God is going to be an emotional one. And while I firmly believe that our, our emotions oftentimes are, are, are involved in what it is that God is doing in our life. But it, just because we're not emotional at any particular moment, it doesn't necessarily mean that God's not doing something in us. You see, your, your salvation and your experiences with God is not based upon your feeling. You know, uh, there's a guy by the name of Ted Bundy. You ever heard of him? Really bad dude. You know that he, he had a, an interesting gift about him that he was able to charm women. You would think somebody as horrible and horrific as a guy like this that he would you would immediately know it. But one of the things that he was able to do is that he was able to charm women and he would charm them and make them feel at ease and make them feel comfortable to the point where they loved being around him. They maybe even loved him. He would charm them, made them feel good. And then once he did that, he would kill them. You see, for all of these women that were killed by Ted Bundy, their feelings betrayed them. Their feelings betrayed them. Just like your feelings can betray you. The way you feel is not the best way or most adequate way to determine whether or not God is working or doing something in your life. And you've got to be able to live at a place where it's not always about your feelings. You have to learn to put your trust into something that is much more dependable than your feelings. And that's the word of God. You see, we obtain salvation not by our feeling, but by our faith. You obtain salvation through faith, right? Okay, When we get saved, when we are born again, it's because we have faith. It's not because you feel something. It's because you have faith. And so we read Romans chapter 10 verse 9. It says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For as with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. 
This is it right here. It says that you will confess Jesus as Lord and you will believe that God raised him from the dead and you will feel emotional and you'll get all upset and you'll cry and you'll feel all joy and, and the sense of peace will come over you and then you will know that you have salvation. Well, it doesn't say anything about any of that kind of stuff. All it says is the salvation is produced by the confessing of our mouth and believing in our heart. For with the mouth that you confess and are saved. Salvation is produced by the confession of your mouth, by what you say with your mouth. And it has nothing to do with how you feel in that moment. This is, this is, this is the reason why you will have people who will uh, bless their hearts. They will give their heart to Jesus 15 times before they actually believe that they're saved. You know what I'm saying? They'll, for every salvation, all to call like, yeah, you know what? I think I just don't know. Because they, they don't recognize the fact that salvation is not some kind of feeling that you have. It's something that you do in faith. That you receive it in faith. Believing in the heart and confessing with the mouth. This is the, o- the only place where it is spelled out. The only place in the Bible where it is spelled out specifically to us how we get saved is right here. Confessing with the mouth and believing with the heart. And we live in a culture where we put no value on words. You realize that, right? We live in a culture today that puts no value on words. No value whatsoever. All right, we say things like, you know, um, sticks and stones may break, but words will never hurt me. You, you do realize that that doesn't come from the Bible, right? That's not in the Bible, all right? But we, we live in a culture that does not value what we say out of our mouth. And you don't even recognize half the time that the things that you say out of the mouth are, you know, um, the Bible says the power of life and death are in the tongue. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Well, you say, well, that doesn't have anything to do with confession. But Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Okay, so scripture says, as you think in your heart, so are you. Well, you're going to say what's in your heart because Jesus said it's going to come up. And so if you're saying and speaking negativity and negative things in your life, and if you're speaking defeat and difficulty and problems in your life, well, it's no wonder you have problems and difficulty and, and, and defeat in your life because you keep talking about it. One of the reasons why we, we or you might be struggling so much in life is because you keep confessing it over and over and over again in your life. You keep saying the wrong things. Now, understand that I'm not, I'm not going, I'm not getting into like a name it, claim it type thing. Confession is not everything, but it is something. Confession is something. It's a major part of the process of faith Confession is a major part of our life of faith. 
All right? It's not everything. You also have to believe in your heart. It's also about what you think about, what you believe about, and what you say. There's three elements to our faith that work hand in hand. And they all got to be in, in, in word together, in unison together in order for it to activate real faith in our life. We have to be thinking the right thing, saying the right thing, and believing the right thing. But confession is a big part, and we are saved by confession. And the Bible clearly shows us that we are saved because we confess that Jesus is Lord. And so the very minute that you confess Jesus Christ is Lord, something changes. The very moment you say, Jesus, you are Lord of my life, something changes. What is it that changes? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, new things have come. When we make this confession, we become a new creation. This is what happens. This is what changes. Our body isn't changed, and our mind isn't changed. But our spirit, man, the deepest part of our being, our spirit is made new. When we are born again, nothing changes in your body. This is the reason why people can be born again and still struggle with strongholds or still struggle with addictions. It's the reason why people can be born again. Your mind is not changing. People can be born again. It doesn't take them from being a pessimist to an optimist all of a sudden in that one moment. Because your mind isn't changed. Your spirit is changed. That's what happens. You become a new creation. And God rebirths your spirit, the deepest part of who you are. This is what happens in salvation. What is salvation? Salvation is a lot of things. It's forgiveness of sins. It is eternal life. It is adoption into God's family. It is a brand new nature. It is having sound and healthy mind. It is inclusion into the Abraham covenant. It is a seat at God's right hand with Christ. It is the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's what happens in that moment when we confess Jesus, our spirits are made new. But you know, there's a, there's a saying that goes like this. We were saved. We are being saved. And one day we will ultimately be saved. You follow me? There was a day in your life where you gave your, you gave your heart to Jesus. I don't, I don't know, giving your heart to Jesus is not really in the Bible, but we just say it like because it's talking about our spirit. But there was a day that you confessed Jesus as Lord and you were saved. You are being saved because it's also a day-to-day process. And we're going to talk about it here in just a second. And one day you'll ultimately be saved when Jesus comes back, okay? And we are raptured to be with the Lord. And we will lose these earthly bodies and be given new ones. Salvation, while salvation, what God did in your spirit is instantaneous, the work of salvation is oftentimes a work in progress. Your brain... Your brain, your mind, whatever, needs to be saved every day. (laughs) I mean, you got 70,000 thoughts running through your brain. You need those thoughts to be Jesus thoughts. Okay? They don't need to be Paul thoughts. You know what I'm saying? They don't need to be the devil thoughts. 
They need to be Jesus' thoughts. And it's too easy kind of to default on Paul's thoughts. It's too easy to default on the little voice on my shoulder thoughts that's trying to tell me all the wrong things and, you know, how, how things aren't going to work out. Or, right? It's too easy to think, hear those things. Your brain is, it doesn't mean that you need to confess Jesus as Lord every day you wake up because you already did that. And that's where God did a change inside your spirit. But your mind was not made new just because you got saved. And in James chapter 1 verse 21 it says, Therefore put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. In humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. Okay? Receive the word which is able to save your souls. And he's talking to believers, people that have already been saved, okay? And that there's another salvation process here that's at work inside of every believer. So James is saying that your soul needs to be saved, okay? Your soul does, all right? Your spirit was saved in salvation. Now we need our soul to be restored on an ongoing basis. In Psalms chapter 23, at the, one of the things in this psalm, this beautiful psalm that talks about the Lord, you know, making me the lie down. Okay? He says that he restores my soul. That there's a restoration process that is ongoing inside of our life. And that's the reason why we got to give our brains a bath. We got we to be brainwashed. We got to wash our brains. God's word, God's word will give your brain a bath. You see, salvation, when we do this, we, when we wash our brains with the word of God, now my salvation is being applied to my head as well as my heart. You see, God did the part of placing salvation in our hearts. It is up to us to put our salvation in our minds. Okay? It is up to you to put your salvation in your mind. All right? Do you think it's a coincidence that Paul used the helmet as a metaphor of salvation, knowing that it is in our minds that we have our greatest battles. It is in the mind, it is in the things that we think about, where we live on a constant basis and those 70,000 thoughts are running through our minds. Is it any coincidence that Paul used this helmet? Okay? He used a helmet of salvation, talking about this, that we need our minds to be renewed. We need our, our brains to be washed, our minds to be washed. We need to have salvation and be working over and over again in our minds. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, it says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing that raises itself against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Right? You see, as we go through life, strongholds develop in the mind. Okay? As you, go, as you have gone through life, You've developed strongholds in the mind. A lot of times we don't even know we develop these strongholds. And these strongholds have come to us because maybe we've been abused. Maybe we've experienced failure. Maybe we've gone through a divorce. 
betrayal. Maybe we've been hurt by family and, and loved ones. Maybe we've been hurt by the church or people in the church or a pastor or a deacon, an elder, somebody in leadership. And then what happens is because of these things that we experience in our life, we develop strongholds in our mind. All right? These strongholds develop there and then it makes us, it produces fear. It produces anxiety. It produces a lack of trust. It produces a lack of ability to put confidence and uh, our, our inability to live at the level of peace and joy that God wants us to live at because we have these strongholds that have been developed inside of our mind because of things that we've experienced in life. And we all have to deal with them in one way or another and they create insecurities and things inside of us, fears, worries. And we have to learn that they can be overcome with the word of God. Every single one of your fears, every single one of your insecurities can be overcome with the word of God. You know, some of our fears that we deal with are illogical. They're just illogical. So-and-so did something to us, and that means basically that everybody will. We can't trust people because somebody betrayed us, and now we feel like everybody's going to betray us, and that's, that's illogical. Some of our fears that we deal with in our life, they're just not rational. They're just illogical fears. They're fears that we have that are just illogical. I've, you know, you know, you've heard of people that just have like crazy fears, like people that are afraid of like doorknobs or something like that. You know, it's like, really? Um, people that are, 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 you know, I've heard of people being afraid of like mayonnaise. It's like, These are illogical fears. These are strongholds that have been developed in the mind because of something, some reason, something happening, whatever. Sometimes it's not stupid stuff like that. Sometimes it could be real life things that we deal with. We have fears that have been created and illogical strongholds inside of us. We automatically assume that everybody's against us. People that are afraid that everybody's against them. You, somebody, you, you see two people talking and recording, you automatically assume they're talking about you. That's, that's an illogical stronghold. It's just not logical to think that if people are talking, they've got to be talking about you. But these things are created inside of our mind. They exist inside of our mind. And if you give place to it, then it develops a stronghold and creates difficulty in you. You see, but the word allows us to overcome these fears. The word of God allows you to trust again. If you read the word of God and or you allow the word of God to work inside of you, it allows you to trust again. The word allows you to forgive. The word of God, you've been hurt, you've been betrayed. Somebody's done something awful to you. You know what? You read the word of God. You find out what God has to say about forgiveness and you allow that word to sink inside of you and it will give you the power and the strength that you need to forgive. The word allows us to respond differently than we used to. Maybe you were raised uh, in a certain way, to act a certain way, to be a certain person, whatever. Maybe you say, this is the only thing that I've been modeled. This is the only thing that I've been seeing in my life. The word of God gives you the power to act the way that Jesus wants you to act even though you've never seen that model before. The word allows you to change. 
The word of God allows you to change. It gives you the power to change who you are. Maybe, maybe you have an anger, an anger stronghold. You just have a, a difficulty. You just get angry. Until you see that that anger hurts you, you won't change. Until you see that that anger is not for you, you won't change. Whatever it is, until you see that that insecurity is not good for you, until you see that that fear is not good for you, you're not going to change. You have to get to the place where you recognize that it's creating difficulty and harm in your life. And when you do that, the Word of God is able to show you these things and bring you to a place of change. So you can look at the Word as it relates to, say, anger for a second. And in Proverbs 22, 8, it says, The rod of his anger shall fail. In other words, the rod of your anger will fail you. Your anger will fail you. And James 1.20 says, For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And then the word of God gives you the power to help you see that this is hurting you. And then you're able to let it go. Rob, she'll come. Some of our fears, some of our strongholds are logical strongholds. They're logical strongholds um, that logic just tells you it's just not logical for you to do. Maybe it's God has told you to do something and, and you, you hear what God has told you to do and you look at the circumstances and you look at all the facts and you say, it's just not logical. It's not logical. This doesn't make logic at all. This doesn't make sense at all. Maybe God's telling you to get more involved, get more involved in the church. You say, I don't have any more time. This is not logical. Maybe God's telling you to lead a small group. Say, I've never taught a small group before. That's, that's not logical. Maybe God's telling you to be faithful in your tithes and your offerings. And you say, I look at my checkbook and that's just not logical. Maybe God is telling you to start a ministry. And you think, it's just not logical. You see, when you're following God, you always have to factor him into the equation. If you're going to be a Christ follower, you got to factor him into the equation. There will be times when you will not be able to figure out everything on your own. There will be times where God tells you to do something and it's not going to make sense. And it's not going to be logical and you're not going to be able to figure out all the details. It's just going to happen. There's going to be times where God tells you to do something and it's just not going to line up. It's not going to make sense. And you're not going to be able to figure out everything on your own. You know, Paul says in Corinthians, when we just read it, it says we are destroying speculations. You know that word speculations is a Greek word, logismos. Logismos. You know what it means? Logical thinking. 
he says that we are destroying logical thinking. Does that make sense? That Paul is destroying, he's, he's, he is casting down, he is destroying logical thinking. Come on, Paul, you can't destroy, you gotta have room for logic somewhere. He's destroying speculations, logical thinking. Look throughout the Bible and see how God led people. There are so many stories where things just weren't logical. Come on, you, I'm sure you got them coming to your mind right now. Think about the stories that are in God's word that just, they just don't add up. They're just not logical. Come on, Daniel. It's not logical for you to be praying when you're being told not to pray. It's not logical. I know that I want you to pray. I know that God has told you to pray. But it's not logical. It's just not wisdom on your part to put yourself in harm's way. It's not logical that a man gets thrown in a lion's den and doesn't get eaten by the lion. At some point along the way, you have to factor God into the equation. Because more often than not, when God leads you, when he guides you, when he tells you to do something, it's not going to be logical. And that's why Paul says we're destroying logical thinking. We're destroying it. Because it most of the time is not cannot be factored into the equation. Come on, what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fighting? For, no, no, that's not logical. Walking around the walls of Jericho for seven days and then seven times and then yelling at the walls, thinking that they're going to come down. It's just not logical. Moses going to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt is not logical. Standing between your enemy and the Red Sea and figuring out a way of rescue, just thinking, hey, if I put this stick in the water, it's not logical. Jesus' death on the cross isn't logical. Jesus' resurrection wasn't logical. You have to be able to account for God in the factor. You have to be able to account for God in the equation. You have to figure out in your mind, it may not add up to me. It may not make sense to me. I don't even understand it all. But if God tells me to do it, I got to do it. You see, salvation is learning to trust God. Salvation is learning to trust God. To trust God's word when you have illogical fears. When you have illogical hurts. When you have illogical anxieties. It's learning to trust God's word. Salvation is learning to trust God's word in the midst of that. And salvation is learning to trust God that when God tells you to do something that just doesn't seem to add up, it just doesn't make sense that you'll trust him anyways.
learning to take every thought captive. What if we were able to put on the helmet of salvation every time the enemy came in to attack us with a thought? What if we were able to repel those thoughts away with God's word? Every time the enemy tried to come and say, you can't do it, you don't have the abilities, you don't have the talents, you don't have the gifts, you don't have this, you don't have that. No, no, no. what about this person? They hurt you, what about that? What, what about this, what about your past? What about? And every time the enemy came in to attack you, you were able to put on that helmet of salvation. And every time that enemy came in, that God's word was standing right there to push those things away. You see, I don't know about you, but I refuse to dwell on those thoughts of fear, doubt, worry, unforgiveness, anger, depression, and anxiety. Why? Because I know, because I know that my God shall supply all my needs according to his riches and glory. Because I know that my God is a friend that sticks closer than our brother. Because I know that my God is my healer. Because I know that my God is my shield and my defender. Because I know that God is my vindicator. And I don't have to walk in unforgiveness. And I don't have to walk in anger and bitterness towards other people. Because God will vindicate me. You see, God's word gives you ability to overcome your fears to overcome these things, these strongholds that are, that are created in the mind that we develop through life's problems and life's difficulties that come our way. And God wants you to be free in your mind as well.